Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Today's extract is from Spitfire by Geoffrey Quill, the legendary Spitfire test pilot. Chapter 6, K5054. Two days later, Bob Handerside and I set off in my old three-litre Bentley with parachutes, overalls, helmets and other gear stowed in the back to drive from Brooklands to Martlesham to start the full load trials on the G4-31 prototype, soon to become the Wellesley, and to complete the contractor's trials in accordance with official requirements. The official test requirements were stringent and very detailed, and I'd studied them long and earnestly. I was acutely conscious of the responsibility for doing these trials at Martlesham, whilst Mutt was standing by for K5054 for his next flight down at Southampton. It was necessary before each flight to transpose carefully a lot of the requirements onto paper on a knee pad, to serve as an aid memoir in the air, and on which to record the results. So, on the 10th of March, I took off in K7556 for Martlesham with Bob Handerside in the back and with a full load of fuel and ballast to represent the payload. We started the specified slow flying and stalling tests, behaviour near the stall, and these had to be carried out with both wheels up and wheels down. I completed the wheels up sequence and then selected undercarriage down, but one leg hung up and I was left with one green light and one red. God damn it, I thought, not again. Just my luck. With the huge span of the G4-31, I began to consider the likely damage of a landing on one leg and a wingtip, as against a straight belly landing with both legs retracted, and decided the latter would probably be the better course. In any event, the aircraft would be quite badly damaged, so it would be sensible to fly back to Brooklands and do the deed there, right outside the works, rather than miles away at Martlesham. As I had plenty of fuel in the tanks, I passed a note to Bob and set course for Brooklands. Passing round the northern perimeter of London, we encountered low cloud and fog, and although I got as far as Staines Reservoir, I could not get any further. Reluctantly, I turned back towards Martlesham, knowing that the crash landing there would greatly complicate the repair job and cause it to take much longer. On arrival at Martlesham, after some three hours in the air, I selected undercarriage down, and lo and behold, the recalcitrant leg came down, but not completely, so that I did not have a green light indicating that the down locks were engaged. However, I could see the leg was almost in the fully down position and reckoned it probably would stand up to a careful landing. So it proved, and the trouble was discovered later, to be due to a broken bull race. On the 26th of March, Mutt told me to get ready to fly the Spitfire. RJ was at Eastleigh at the time and so was Ernie Mansbridge, who was the member of the technical office whose job it was to organise flight test schedules and special instrumentation and to arrange for the calculations necessary to correct and record performance figures obtained in the air. In short, Mansbridge was the technician on the ground who directly complimented the pilot in the air. Also there was Alf Faddy, who, under Joe Smith, had been largely responsible for the detailed design of the structure and was thus deeply interested in the engineering and functional aspects of the test flying. And of course, Ken Scales, who was nanny to the prototype and practically never let it out of his sight, except, unavoidably, when it was flying. So, 
I climbed into the cockpit, and Ken Scales, standing on the port wing route, helped me fasten my parachute and the Sutton harness, and then closed the little access door at shoulder height on the left-hand side of the cockpit. The cockpit was narrow, but not cramped. I sat in a natural and comfortable attitude. The rudder pedals were adjustable, the throttle and mixture controls were placed comfortably for the left hand, the seat was easily adjustable up or down. The retractable undercarriage selector, lever and hydraulic hand pump were situated to the right of the seat. The instrument panel was tidy, symmetric and logically laid out. The windscreen was of curved perspex, which gave a good deal of optical distortion, but it had a clear-view glass panel, not yet armoured, for vision dead ahead in the line of the gun sight. The sliding canopy was straight-sided and operated directly by hand with a latch which engaged the top of the windscreen. With the seat in the fully up position, there was very little headroom, but at once I felt good in that cockpit. I primed the Merlin engine carefully, and it started first time. I began taxiing out to the northeast end of the airfield, which, of course, was entirely of grass. Never before had I flown a fighter with such a very long nose. With the aircraft in its ground attitude, vision directly ahead was completely obscured, so I taxied slowly on a zigzag course in order to ensure a clear path ahead. The great two-bladed wooden propeller, by this time of maximum course pitch, seemed to turn over very slowly, and from the stub exhausts, one for each of the twelve cylinders, came a good powerful crackle whenever a small burst of power was applied for taxiing, followed by a lot of popping in the exhausts as the throttle was closed again. On arrival at the edge of the field, I turned the aircraft 45 degrees off the wind and did my cockpit checks, which at that stage really consisted only of fuel cocks, trimmer and flap settings, radiator shutter, tightening the throttle friction grip and a quick check over the engine instruments. With a last look round for other aircraft, I turned into wind and opened the throttle. With that big fixed-pitch propeller able to provide only very low revs during takeoff, the acceleration was sluggish and full right rudder was required to hold the aeroplane straight. The torque reaction tended to roll the aircraft on its narrow undercarriage, but soon we were airborne and climbing away. At once, it was necessary to reset the rudder trimmer and then to deal with the undercarriage retraction and the canopy. This presented a minor problem insofar as the undercarriage had to be raised with a hydraulic hand pump, so it was necessary to transfer the left hand from the throttle to the stick and operate the hand pump with the right. This was difficult to do without inducing a longitudinal oscillation of the whole aircraft. However, once fully airborne and tidied up, the aircraft began to slip along as if on skates, with the speed mounting up steadily, and an immediate impression of effortless performance was accentuated by the low revs of the propeller at that low altitude. The aeroplane just seemed to chunter along at an outstandingly higher cruising speed than I had ever experienced before, with the engine turning over very easily, and in this respect it was somewhat reminiscent of my old Bentley cruising in top gear. I climbed up to a few thousand feet and carried out some steep turns and some gentle rolls, and found the aircraft light and lively, but with a tendency to sheer about a bit directionally. I put it into a gentle dive, and it accelerated with effortless ease, and then I came back to rejoin the circuit for landing. The flaps, which I had already tried out in the air, came down on the prototype to only 60 degrees, which was the maximum lift, but not maximum drag position, so the glide angle on the approach was very flat, and the attitude markedly nose up. This feature was accentuated by the fact that the big wooden propeller ticked over extremely slowly and produced no noticeable drag or deceleration. The approach, with the use of a little power and very nose up, 
meant the view straight ahead was almost non-existent as one got close to the ground. So I approached the airfield in a gentle left-hand turn, canopy open, and head tilted to look round the left-hand side of the windscreen. Mutt had warned me about this, so I was able to get myself on the right line at the outset. As I chopped the throttle on passing over the boundary hedge, the deceleration was hardly discernible, and the airplane showed no desire to touch down. It evidently enjoyed flying. But finally, it settled gently on three points, and it wasn't until after the touchdown that the mild aerodynamic buffeting associated with the stalling of the wing became apparent. Here, I thought to myself, is a real lady. I decided that I must do another takeoff and another landing, so I taxied back again to the edge of the field and opened up. Shortly before becoming airborne, I realised that I had forgotten to retract the flaps. It was too late to cancel the takeoff, so I pressed on and we became airborne without trouble, albeit with a bit of buffeting. At about 200 feet, I raised the flaps and the aeroplane sank a few feet and then climbed away normally. I flew round for a while and came in for a second landing, this time with full confidence and was delighted to make another perfect three-pointer. I noticed how the stick hardly moved during the flare-out for landing, which really seemed to be a case of fingertip control for the aircraft, seemed almost to land itself. I felt rather foolish about having done my second takeoff with the flaps down, and I apologised to RJ, who said, Don't worry, we needed to try that sooner or later anyway. Now you've done it so we can forget it. The next day, the 27th of March, I flew K5054 twice more, doing performance measurement, level speed runs, and recording cooling figures and the effect on speed of various settings of the ducted radiator. That same day, I took RJ Mitchell and Jimmy Eller of Rolls-Royce for a flight in the Falcon to circle over the RMS Queen Mary, which was anchored in Cowles Roads, waiting to enter Southampton on her way from the Clyde for her maiden voyage to New York. We flew low over this great ship, which had a crowd of yachts and small craft milling around her. Queen Mary and the Spitfire, both brand new, seemed to me in their different ways to be symbolic of an enterprising, exciting and challenging future. After those flights, K5054 disappeared into the works for various outstanding jobs to be done, and it did not fly again for six weeks. During that interval, I spent much time at Martlesham, continuing the tests on the Wellesley prototype. On the 11th of May, I flew K5054 on level speed performance measurements at altitude, checking lateral stability characteristics at the stall and ground handling and air handling at the forward limit of the centre of gravity. Then, later on that afternoon, Mutt Summers flew K5054 on a handling check and I flew the Falcon with RJ in the back, accompanied by John Yoxall, the chief photographer of Flight Magazine, to take the first air-to-air photographic sortie of K5054. It was at about this time that the G4-31 and the F37-34 acquired their official names, Wellesley and Spitfire. The first use of the name Wellesley appears in my log on the 3rd of April, and the use of the name Spitfire, as opposed to Supermarine Fighter, on the 11th of May. It is said that Sir Robert McLean proposed the name Spitfire, and the air staff agreed to it. The name had previously been used unofficially for the F7-30 gull-winged steam-cooled fighter designed by Mitchell and first flown on the 19th of February 1934. It was an ill-starred project of extremely disappointing performance which never got beyond the prototype stage. The failure of this aeroplane had been a sore point with Mitchell who had tended to blame the restrictive nature of the operational requirement laid down by the Air Ministry but the F7-30 episode had the positive and significant result of inspiring Mitchell to start an altogether new design project. 
The result was K5054. When the name of his failed aeroplane was revived and applied to his beautiful new creation, Mitchell was far from being enchanted. He was too by this time a much sicker man than any of us realised, and he could sometimes become rather tetchy. When told that henceforth K5054 was to be known as Spitfire, he barked, sort of bloody silly name they would give it. The immediate task, however, was to get the Spitfire to Martlesham for its official trials, upon which the whole future of the aeroplane depended. By the time I first flew the aeroplane, on the 26th of March, Mutt had done only a few spot checks of speed performance and nothing on climb or ceiling. He had concentrated only on establishing that the basic flying qualities and other functional aspects were reasonably satisfactory. His cursory speed checks had not been encouraging and a thorough performance check was now required. I did two flights on the 27th of March devoted to recording accurate sets of level speeds above and below the full throttle height, which was just below 17,000 feet. I also recorded information on the ducted radiator system. This had been designed as a result of basic research work done at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, RAE, by Dr Meredith and had been a major factor in reducing the cooling drag which would otherwise have constituted a most serious barrier to the performance of both the Spitfire and the Hurricane. The early recording of data on its functioning was therefore a matter of great importance. Meredith's work at Farnborough was an excellent example of how basic research at the RAE could make a vital contribution to ad hoc design work carried out by industry. This was exactly how the system was meant to work. The result of the set of level speeds I recorded on that day was extremely disappointing, showing a top speed in the region of only 335 mph. This was a source of great worry to Mitchell, because it was little more than the Bush Telegraph system was telling us about the top speed of Sydney Cam's Hurricane, already several months ahead of us in development. Mitchell was well aware that the air staff were hoping for a much better performance from the Spitfire, and that, unless it had a substantial advantage in speed over the Hurricane, a production order would not be considered justifiable. Also, Mitchell had always afforded the first priority in the design of the Spitfire to the achievement of maximum performance and several sacrifices of other characteristics, such as pilot's view and ease of production, have been made in pursuit of this. In deciding upon a wing of unusually low thickness, chord ratio, he had gone against all contemporary aerodynamic opinion and fashion, and here now was Cam's Hurricane, with a very thick wing, fabric covering and a humped-backed fuselage, affording excellent pilot's view, and with exactly the same power, going almost as fast as Mitchell's sleek metal-skinned thing-wing Spitfire. There was no question, therefore, of the aeroplane going to Martlesham until a much better performance had been achieved. A number of refinements were made in the hope of discovering sources of unsuspected drag and the efficiency of the aerodynamic design of the fixed-pitch wooden propeller came under suspicion. The Spitfire propeller designers considered that at full speed and revs, the helical speed of the propeller tips were such that they might be running into compressibility, e.g. Mach number, problems, so they designed a propeller with tip sections to alleviate this possibility. While this propeller was being manufactured, we tested some other propellers, but none of them produced any very significant improvement. Then, on the 5th of May, I flew with the new Supermarine propeller and carried out a full set of level speed tests. Alfred Price quotes Ernest Mansbridge, Geoffrey went off and did a set of level speeds with it. When he came down, he handed me the test card with a big grin and said, I think we've got something here. And we had. <laughs>
we'd got 13 miles per hour. After correcting the figures, we made the maximum speed 348 mph, which we were very pleased with. Mitchell's objective had been 350 mph, but he considered 348 mph good enough. Apart from solving the performance problem, it was of course essential to ensure that the handling and stability qualities of the aeroplane were fully acceptable before sending it to Martlesham, and also that the general functional and strength characteristics had been proven. This is what occupied the rest of the limited flying available to us before the aircraft was dispatched to A and AEE. On one of his early flights, George Pickering had encountered some incipient rudder overbalance and it was decided then and there to reduce the area of the rudder horn balance. Thereafter, the directional stability characteristics were reasonably acceptable. Determination of the centre of gravity limits was the next job. The forward limit was determined by ground handling and braking considerations, but the aft limit by longitudinal stability characteristics in flight. I flew K5054 at an extended aft limit centre of gravity loading on the 13th of May and the aircraft was violently unstable. So we moved the centre of gravity progressively forward by a process of ballasting until we reached a position where, on a purely qualitative assessment, the longitudinal stability characteristics seemed reasonably acceptable. In those days, since there was no reliable or accurate method of measuring control forces, stick forces, or elevator angles, the only quantitative way of measuring stability in the air was by recording fugoids. This was done by disturbing the aircraft longitudinally from a trimmed condition of flight and then leaving it to its own devices and recording by stopwatch and airspeed indicator reading how and if the disturbance damped out or whether it increased in amplitude or even diverged. If the disturbance damped itself out and the aircraft returned to its original condition of trimmed flight, the stability was positive, but if the disturbance increased in amplitude or diverged, then the aeroplane was to a greater or lesser degree unstable. At the aft limit loading, which we eventually settled on at that time, the fugoids which I recorded showed the aeroplane to be just unstable, but not seriously so. At its normal service loading, however, the stability was just positive, and I thought this acceptable, but I asked Mutt Summers for his opinion, and he agreed it is suitable for delivery to Martlesham. However, all this showed that the longitudinal stability of the Spitfire was very marginal, and that the acceptable range of centre of gravity movement in flight was very small. This was, in fact, indicating a problem which was to be with us in one form or another throughout the long development life of the aeroplane. Lateral stability at the stall in accordance with ADM 293, also had to be checked, and this was done on an opportunity basis during flights primarily devoted to performance measurement. On the 14th of May, I did the first dives to the design maximum permissible indicated airspeed of 380 mph IAS indicated airspeed. These dives were done at a height at which the corrected true airspeed worked out at 465 miles per hour. During the second dive, the port undercarriage fairing tore away with a loud bang and damaged the underside of the fuselage. In those dives, I observed that the aileron control was becoming rather heavy, but not excessively so. On the first production versions of the Spitfire in 1938, the maximum permissible indicated airspeed in a dive was increased by nearly 100 miles per hour to 470 mph IAS, and this was when the aileron problems came to light. See chapter 15. Cooling suitability tests for glycol and oil systems had to be done before delivery and these required some special instrumentation and special flights. Spinning tests 
however, were deferred until later, after the aeroplane had returned from its first sessions at Martlesham, because the model tests which had been carried out in the free spinning tunnel at the RAE had indicated very poor recovery characteristics. Obviously, nobody wished to risk losing the aeroplane at this stage in the game. The pressures both from the Air Ministry and from within Vickers to get the aeroplane delivered as soon as possible to Martlesham were enormous, but the overriding consideration in Mitchell's mind had been to get the maximum possible speed performance, and he would not let it go until he was satisfied. In retrospect, perhaps, the most surprising feature of that early phase of tests was the very small amount of flying that was possible. This was due primarily to the aeroplane spending a lot of time in the works on engine and propeller changes and modifications, and alterations of various kinds. K-5054 was flown to Martlesham on the 26th of May 1936 by Mutt Summers and handed over to Squadron Leader Anderson, CO of A-Flight, A and AEE. At that time, the normal all-up weight of the aeroplane was 5,819 pounds, with the centre of gravity at point three two one of the mean wing cord. The three RAF pilots primarily involved in these early Martlesham trials were Flight Lieutenant H. Edwards-Jones, Sergeant S. Roth and Flight Lieutenant Simmons. The trials carried out at Martlesham established a top speed of 349 miles per hour for the aircraft against our measured result of 348. Such a close result was satisfactory for us and the discrepancy of one mile per hour was probably accounted for by minor differences in instrument error. They also gave a service ceiling of 35,400 feet and a takeoff run of 235 yards in a five-knot wind. The Martlesham report on K5054 was issued piecemeal in a series of interim documents. It had a basic reference number, followed by interim 1, interim 2, etc., Interim 1, issued in July 1936, dealt only with performance figures and gave no information on handling characteristics, except for some fugoid plots reproduced without comment. It can be concluded from this that the air staff were at that point interested only in the aircraft's performance, for they would go ahead with it only if it offered a substantial improvement over the hurricane. This is borne out by Sir Humphrey Edwards-Jones, who has said that, when the aeroplane was delivered to A Squadron in 1936, he was telephoned by the Air Ministry and told to fly it at once and report on one immediate question. Was the aeroplane capable of being flown safely by ordinary squadron pilots? Fortunately for us all, he replied that in his opinion the answer was yes. A production order for 310 aircraft was placed on the 3rd of June 1936 before any formal report on K5054 had been issued by A and AEE although no doubt the air staff had kept themselves informed on a daily basis by telephone. Such was the official urgency and desire for Mitchell's aeroplane. A contract for 600 Hurricanes from Hawkers was signed on the same day. When the first Martlesham handling report was issued, there were remarkably few criticisms, and such as there were tended to be of relatively trivial nature. The wing stiffness of the prototype limited it to a maximal permissible diving speed of only 380 miles per hour indicated airspeed. The A and AEE report stated the aeroplane was dived to 300 mph ASI and up to that speed the ailerons were not unduly heavy and gave adequate response. On the subject of longitudinal stability, the report said, Longitudinally, the aeroplane is neutrally stable with engine on and stable in the glide. 
The aeroplane is unstable in the glide, with flaps and undercarriage down. In general, the stability characteristics are satisfactory for a fighting aeroplane and give a reasonable compromise between controllability and steadiness as a gun platform. Martlesham criticisms were limited at this stage to the suggestion that, since the elevator control was very powerful and effective, perhaps too much so in the landing case, a reduction in the gear ratio between control column and elevator could be an advantage. Also, the visual distortion caused by the moulded Perspex windscreen was criticised, and it was suggested that the windscreen might be made of flat glass panels, even if this caused a small increase in drag. In fact, this was not done until 1940, when I returned from a short tour of operations in 65 Squadron and made very strong representations to Supermarine. Changes to the stick elevator gearing were in fact tried later on and found to be unsatisfactory and were abandoned. Production aircraft reverted to the original gearing. K5054 went to Martlesham this first time with neither guns nor ammunition tanks fitted. This was because so few Browning guns were then available in Britain that there had been none to spare for the Spitfire prototype. No radio was installed, nor anything that could really be described as operational equipment for a fighter. It was a single-seater flying machine of extremely good performance, very sweet to fly and with no vices. But it was very far from being a fighter aeroplane, and therefore the production order was placed by the Air Ministry entirely on the basis of its potential. This represented a value judgment by the Air Council based on the advice of the air staff in London and the RAF pilots at Martlesham who flew the aeroplane and recognised it for what it was, a thoroughbred. It was also an indication of the utmost confidence in RJ Mitchell. There was still, however, a long and difficult road ahead before a quantity produced and fully effective fighting machine was to emerge from the submarine factory. On the 10th of February 1936, the Air Minister, Lord Swinton, had submitted to the Cabinet proposals whereby the existing expansion scheme C should be increased to provide a frontline strength for the Metropolitan Air Force of 124 squadrons, or 1,736 frontline aircraft, by 1939. This was agreed by the Cabinet on the 26th of February 1936 and was known as Scheme F. Under this scheme, reserves were to comprise two and a quarter times the frontline strength, and it was under Scheme F, which of course was not wholly devoted to fighters, that the Air Ministry ordered 600 Hurricanes and 310 Spitfires. That these two orders were placed simultaneously makes it clear that, once Scheme F had been authorised by the government, the air staff moved as fast as possible to order the most modern types. It was just as well they did, because the problems of getting the Spitfire and Hurricane into production proved to be very great indeed.